This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. That wonderful mellifluous music. Good morning, good morning. You are on 3 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxhaw. And I'm John Ford. Good morning, young John. Oh, good morning. Uh, oh, come young. on, say young. Oh, John. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> and thank you to I, 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 young Tim. <laughs> I did that so you'd come back with that. <laughs> and you stumbled. Sorry. <laughs> I know, young Tim, what a great show. Mm-hmm. With Tim Indeed. and Rosie in there, and Rosie, I just uh, what a great show. Tim is. Kent and I were in the green room, just yeah. sort of staring in and listening to Rosie, and just thinking, "Wow, imagine, imagine if we had a voice like that." Or Tim and or Rosie. Well, well, well either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we know? had a voice like Tim, we could be an amazing oh, radio presenter. I know. Oh. Do you know? I saw a thing, and I'm sorry, Tim is going to embarrass you completely, but. <laughs> I saw an interview this week with John Laws, okay? They called him the Golden Tonsils. I'll tell you what, as an aside, that man is not an oil painting. He never was, but he's really not an oil painting these days. He's, he's beautifully built for radio, put it that way. But he has, still has the Golden Tonsils. And as I listened to him and then as I listened to Tim on the way oh, no. in the car, the mellifluous tone of Tim, that deep, beautiful baritone, I it's thought... Sort of- <gasps> He's got a better voice than John Laws. Mm. Probably got like 0.02% of the disposable income of John Laws, but, you know, like, the, the man is just... Uh, we all want to be Tim. Tim Thorpe. 
The saviour of the radio universe. Anyway, you're on Radio Marinara, not the Tim Thorpe. Um, appreciation, <laughs> appreciation hour. <laughs> Maybe we'll come. Honestly, I just I love him. I love the man. Mm-hmm. You're on Radio Marinara. We're going to do a bunch of interesting things. We've got a bunch of news, all kinds of stuff, pollution, global pollution, Indonesian pollution. Mm, Arctic, toxic corals, corals uh, oh. coal spills. Loads of stuff. Yeah, loads of Stuff. And then in the middle of the show, um, Dr. Travis Park is coming in and we're going to talk about the, where whales came from. Where whales came from? Mm. So scallops last week, uh-huh. whales this week. Don't wow. say we don't cover the spectrum. Oh, wow. Here on Marinara. Come- I'm thinking yeah, of, As in evolution they, of oh, whales. So they didn't come here on some meteor, <laughs> meteor from well, outer space? Maybe they did. Hold that thought and let's Ooh. ask Travis when he gets in. Wow. I think of the possibilities of where whales originated from, I think what you just suggested is the least likely. Is the least. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, on the range of possible whale origins. But still a possibility. Meteors from outer space, I'm going to put very few dollars on. Okay, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And as well, a practising scientist, Dr Ford, um, yourself, are you thinking that is a real possibility for whale origins? Well, <laughs> I can't say extraterrestrial life is, you know, my the topic of my PhD and, and my expertise, but um, I'm always happy to talk about it. I, I, okay, I'm just going to draw a line there and say I don't think whales came from meteors. <laughs> hey, um, and then you've got a conundrum. Yeah, I've got a question to throw out to everyone for us to have a little bit of discussion about, and it's about it's about aquaculture, it's about mm-hmm. fish farming, yeah. and it's seen as you know the the next big thing to feed the world. You know, if we want to all eat fish, we need to start farming them because um, you know the wild, the oceans can only give us so much. Um, but locally, mm-hmm. it doesn't look like there's much of an appetite for fish farming, and in Tasmania. Um, you know, there's a lot lot of community outcry um, yeah, around expansion and so on of aquaculture. So we're just going to put the discussion, have a little bit of discussion about, you know, w- if we want to feed the world and we want to expand fish farming, then, yeah, what do we Ooh, need to do? Yes. Yeah, how do we wow. need to maybe change attitudes, even change our expectations? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm looking forward to that. Mm. And then I, I'm trying not to. Because I think it belittles the topic. But every time you say feed the world, I hear Boy George. Okay. <laughs> Let them know it's Christmas time at feed the world. You should see Kent. See, Kent is old enough to remember this. Mm-hmm. And so is Tim. John, you're not. Um, so <laughs> Google it. Anyone under my age, anyone who was born before mobile phones, Google that. <laughs> and you'll know what it is. <laughs> and then you'll look at the world in a totally different way. <laughs> um, anyway, you're on Radio Marinara. Week. What, um, what's the weather? I think we've got a real autumn week. Autumnal. Autumnal. Mm, a real love autumnal love week. This is going to be a challenge, week. you know, because over the years, of course, people have been listening to Marinara and the... And the um, particularly with bronze presentations of the weather over the years, would have noticed a change in the language mm. from the Bureau. And this will be a test because if it's a truly autumnal week, then we'll have some florid autumnal language in there. Mm. So anyway. Well, today. <laughs> top of 15 degrees mm-hmm. in the city, partly cloudy, very high chance of showers. You may have already received showers. Oh. Um, and possible hail in the southeast suburbs. Oh. I am from the southeast suburbs and I can confirm there was hail this morning. No, really? So they were quite accurate. Wow. Yes. 
Yes. Wow. Yeah, it wins 20 to 30 Ks. And then we've huh. got a week um, of around 17s and 18s by the looks of it and bits of rain here and there. So tomorrow, 17 with showers. Uh, Tuesday, 17, cloudy. Wednesday, 18, and cloudy and a little bit of rain. Moving into more rain in <laughs> later in the week, 16 and 17. So it looks like it's going to be those days, particularly those 18 ones where it's kind of cold, cold mornings. You might have a little bit of cloud coming over, but, you know, the sun does break through and you think, yes, this and is autumn. And then it rains on you. Yeah, and then it rains <laughs> on you. It's say, true. I don't, I'm not sure that I got too much autumnal out of that. I felt like wintry. No, no, no. 18 degrees is not winter. Winter's coming. No, the sun will be there. Oh, yeah. Well, and mm. then it'll get grey and Yeah, the, exactly. Winter, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. sun. Um, look, the surf is mm-hmm. pretty crap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's technical too. Yeah, it's pretty crap, guys. Um, yeah. Solid building swells, strengthening yeah. southwest winds are creating poor conditions across most Victorian beaches. Although the water temperature so, is a nice 17 degrees. Oh, that's still all right, isn't it? Mm, still Gee. This is this crossover month, isn't it, where the mm. water temperature and the air temperature cross mm. and then it all just goes downhill. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I think solid building swells. Mm. You know what I translate that to mean? There's nothing here, but we're hopeful there'll be something <laughs> yeah, well, later in the week. <laughs> in the late, yeah, I think that it, it's either too big or too windy and if you want to find something, it's got to be pretty sheltered by the sounds of it. Mm. Anything else you want to give uh, us? The wind southwest 20, 30 knots. You don't ooh, even want to dive. You don't want to be out in the water, really, in that no, kind of. Inside. Yeah, it's so, going to be cold, strong winds. Yeah, um, listen to talk shows on Triple R. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you want to know, at Point Lonsdale, there's a high tide at, at 8.48 um, and a low tide at 2 p.m. Mm. Mm, there you go. You're on Radio Marinara on 3 Triple R. John. Yeah, we've got a little bit of uh, news to go through in the week. And I'm going to start up. On a topic that I've been covering now for uh, for quite a few months, and that's about ar- the Arctic and the Arctic sea ice. Yes. And so the Arctic sea ice is melting, yes. and we've had the the lowest sea ice for um, for the both winter and and summer. And so they're predicting that the ice is going to melt away, and that we won't have Arctic sea ice, particularly in the summer, um, by about twenty forty. Goodness me. Yes, indeed. Now that's that's a big change. And that's yes. not, not good for a whole lot of things. But I want to see the positive side, well, at least the positive side for, for humans, and that's about the, um, the northern or the northern passage. Or the, north, the northern passage. <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting. So th- what this is is that if, all, if the Arctic ice melts, then you can send ships around the top of Europe or around Your the top. And this me. is not the Northwest Passage. The Northwest no. Passage is, is above, uh, above Canada, but this is the Northern Passage, which is above Europe. And so what they're looking at is that if the, indeed this ice does melt, then you could send ships, say, from Europe, say, from um, Amsterdam or Rotterdam um, across to, you know, China, and you would save yourself almost 4,000 nautical miles and nine days of travel. Which probably has a consequence saving on carbon. On carbon, exactly. It has a how, consequence saving how on carbon. interestingly counterintuitive. Exactly. By, having, by burning too many fossil fuels, we've raised the temperature, which has melted the sea ice, which has meant that we can save carbon. Save carbon, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, I want, I want to leave it there, but I'm just, I'm just saying that that's... Um, what yeah, a conundrum yeah. that one is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I've got one uh, interesting one, totally different topic. Um, in the conversation a couple of... It was about a month ago, I think, he says, <clears throat> just going through puberty, as he's voice raises. Um, really interesting article uh, by Thomas Wright, who's at the uh, University of Queensland, the Department of Anthropology, around um, pollution, particularly marine pollution in Indonesia. 
And I found a couple of interesting things. There's a movement in Indonesia to decrease pollution. Like there really is a genuine commitment, it seems. But they're really struggling with um, how to balance the need to reduce pollution because and the tourism dollars it generates and the fact that they want to you know, drive the economy and build the economy, which is often based on tourism. Some industry as well, but um, the um, sorry, 3.22 million metric tonnes of waste is, is derived annually through Indonesia. And Indonesia is the world's second biggest marine polluter after China. And they account for 10% of the, marine, of the world's marine pollution. So 10% Little of the Indonesia. marine pollution comes from Indonesia. Yeah. Of the wow. world's it, marine pollution. It does have a big coastline. It does. If you think about, you know, if you, if you laid it all out end to mm. end. But and also there's a lot of people there, but nowhere near, say, the size of India. Yeah, that's in true. In terms of population. Mm-hmm. And so it is extreme. I found that extremely interesting. And we won't go into the details about what, why, you know, these are bad things to do. But there is actually an Indonesian summit recently. They announced they're pledging a billion dollars to curb ocean waste by 70%, as in reduce it by 70% of what it currently is by 2020, uh, 2025. At the same time, they're trying to increase um, national visitors from 9.7 million in 2015 to 20 million by 2020. So that's visitors. Visitors. Okay, right. And part of the problem and the challenge is that more visitors require more um, Mm. things to be you know, provided, which provides, which creates more pollution. Yeah. So what they're trying to do is break that cycle. Mm. So you bring in more people, people come because it's beautiful and they don't leave pollution when they mm. go as well as they change their economy. So it's yeah, a real challenge it, for a country like is, Indonesia. Is tourism actually the cause of that pollution or is it more, I mean... Is it, I mean, well, just the cities, is it just life? You know, I mean, having been to Indonesia, there's lots of single-use plastic. So, I mean, why people don't have the the disposable income, so they're not buying in bulk, they're buying uh, with the money they have, and that often is individual serves of things, and therefore they they have plastic around them, and then those go on the ground, and then that goes in the ocean. Absolutely spot on. There's no doubt that tourism, without the right infrastructure to support it, because, so, for example, Bali's landfills overfilled... Mm, um, by yeah. 70%. Right. So where does all that stuff go, you know, that we, when we go there, or those of us that do, you know, when we use things? So, yes, there's the, you're right. Mm. It's the lifestyle generally and how you change it and and then it's the infrastructure to, to, mm. to support dealing with that much waste. Mm. So anyway, yeah, very interesting conundrum. Mm. You got another one? Yes, I do. Um, a little Cook's <coughs> Tour of cool <coughs> news items. Yeah, well, it's to say... Um, the Adani Abbott Point saga, if those who have been oh, following yes. it. So this is up in Abbott, Abbott Point, which is a coal loading terminal um, now, which is linked to the Adani Group, which is trying to start the um, uh, Carmichael coal mine, a very large one. And what happened was there was a big cyclone, which I'm sure most are aware of, called Cyclone Debbie. And that meant there was a lot of water coming into this little coal terminal. And they, whilst they weren't uh, meant to release any water with sort of, you know, coal dust in it, um, it appears from aerial photos that a lot of this coal dust, which is, you know, obviously there's a whole big pile of coal sitting there. You get a lot of rain and a lot of wind. It blows, it's going to blow and wash somewhere. And so it appears to have washed into 
into wetlands, and that's at least what aerial photos will show us, and it looks like that they may get a very large fine from from that, and that water may or may not have, we have not, not <laughs> yet been determined, um, been released into the marine environment, which had coal dust in it too, yeah, and that wow. may that there are also photos that appear to be a black beaches, which look like coal dust, although the Australian did run a story saying that that was natural magnetite. So I don't, I'm not sure where we went from there, but yes, as we will see the outcome of the, because Adani are generally denying mostly everything. So we will, (laughs) mostly everything everything they are denying. Um, So we'll see what the outcome is. It's like that that little, um, you know, that proposal just on every, Every kind of element, there's something that happens, you know, that, that draws attention to concern that people have, whether it's the train line and the economics, whether it's the, you know, whether it's the CO2 capability of all that coal, whether it's the fact that you get a simple storm. Well, I've a got, simple I've storm, got, storm I've got a cyclone. I've but, got you know. three magical words for you, Andy. Okay. Jobs and growth. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Uh, I'm going to. I've got another one. Can I? Yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, we sh- we're going to keep following that one because it just seems to me to be. I, I do not understand, and I'm just. I do not understand how we can possibly imagine new uses for coal <laughs> at this point in the cycle of climate change and our our development as as humans. I just don't get it. So I don't get that. I don't get the kind of rationale for it. Anyway, here we are. Um, hey, CSIRO recently did, it was a, um, atmosphere Oceans and Atmosphere flagship, recently published a really interesting article estimating the quantities and sources of marine debris at a continental scale in Australia. So there's a, um, a bunch of people down in Hobart um, mainly led by uh, uh, Denise Hadesti down in the, in that group, and what they did was they 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 did litter, national litter surveys, okay, across the kind of continental shelf or, or from at least the beach top right down, and they 175 sites, and they used a stratified random sampling design, so they went to all kinds of different places, and this is really interesting. It's a piece of nerdy science where they've gone and looked at coastline shape. So was it convex or straight? Substrate was it gravel, mud, rock, sand? The Backshore type? Was it a dune? Was it woody? Was it grassland? Was it mangroves? Was it a seawall? Was it buildings? Um, and then they looked at things like, you know, was it Tassie? Was it the mainland? They had these other little factors like, was it within five kilometres of, of population? Was it in, within 50 kilometres of population? And they built all these models. Oh, where was the nearest road? So uh, just trying to predict, yeah, using predict. these to predict where litter or yes. r- marine debris, or which yeah. is pretty much rubbish, yeah, pretty where much rubbish is yep. on the beach. Yeah. Two thirds of what they found um, were plastic, 70 or 68% actually, so more than two thirds. 17% were glass, 6% were paper, 2% were wood. Some were identifiable, 2% were cigarette butts, which is interesting. Uh, fishing line was 1%. About 2% overall was, was from recreational fishing and about 75% was plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they could identify all the stuff, but then they basically said you can kind of predict based on how close you are. And the one really interesting little thing they found was the closer you were to civilization. So with that five kilometres from in near major cities, the cleaner it was, which was counterintuitive to the rest of their model because their model said that human population and close roads, et cetera, mean you're going to get more likely to get um, you know, pollution. Mm-hmm. 
And then they decide, they're postulating, they don't know, but they're postulating. That's because there's active cleaning by friends groups and councils and mm. all this kind of exposure that we have yeah, around yeah. it. So people are much more aware. And there's also behaviour change around people getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Illegal disposal of every form, you know, putting your, your plastic bottle on the ground and and all the other things were the main drivers, mm-hmm. they're saying, of the appearance of these yep. pieces of, of plastic. Mm. It's just getting rid of it the wrong way. But um, isn't that... It's the first top piece of science, science like this that I've seen. Litter, yeah. Usually it's just monitoring that says it's mapped here and here. Mm-hmm. But this has got these quite, quite strong... Um, Correlations that they've looked mm. at about where and why with predictions. So can you start using these these kind of predictive models to go? All right, these are the areas where we we, we think there's going to be lots Spot of litter on. to actually start Spot targeting cleanups. You can and guess where on a nationwide scale most litter is going to end up. Tassie, the <laughs> west coast of Tassie. No way. And the southwest coast of the mainland, so down below Perth. Okay, so Just all the ocean currents take yep, it yep. up and around Tasmania or... It's bizarre. Like it, interesting. You know, the, the south, so the biggest... And then also there's a big gap of production between Melbourne and Brisbane, mm, obviously, mm. Um, but the, the most of it ends up on those two locations mm, well, you can do exactly what you're saying. You've got the currents coming down, so you've got the East Australia coming, yep. coming down one coast and you've got the Lewin current coming down the western coast. It's pushing all that litter down. So it kind of makes sense, I guess. It does. I mm. was surprised by that. So the third most likely is southeastern Australia, which mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, yep. and particularly, but the band, the biggest band of origin mm. is Melbourne to Brisbane. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting piece of science. La grosse radio pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids, is that right? All oh, right, okay. So last, <laughs> that was your, you were meant to come in there and say, yes, you look all of 22. That's indeed. You, you were born with that Christmas, <laughs> was it, the, the Feed the World song? Up. Yep, yeah. You're, you're, you're a babe these, in arms at that time. You're not picking yep. these signals, are they? <laughs> hey, you're on Radio Mara. Last time we, um, about last month, I should say, we talked about the origins of supersonic hearing in Wales with almost doctor, um, Travis Park from Museum Victoria and Monash University. And we realised, that actually, I realised, I knew nothing about the origins, evolution origins of Wales themselves. And um, so Travis joins us again to talk about where whales come from. Good morning, Travis, and welcome back to Radio Morning, Manara. thanks for having me back in. Now, look, let's start with the oldest recorded whale fossils, like a thing that you as a whale paleontologist-ish type person, is that how you identify yourself? <laughs> yeah, pre- pretty much, yes. That, you know, you recognise, you look at that and go, that's a whale fossil. Like, how old is that? Uh, the oldest one is an animal known as Pachycetus, and it's about 50 million years old, give or take a couple of million years. Okay. And so what are the distinguishing features that makes that a whale? Um, there's a few features, but the one that's sort of the, the clincher is one of the ear bones, and uh, it's uh, sort of large, it's in, quite inflated, and in one side it's quite thickened, and that's just, if you see that, you've got a, basically you've got a whale, hmm. and that has it, but... And many, many other features of the skeleton, you would not think it's a whale at all. Mm-hmm. Oh, and what, what, like, what other features? This will give us a hint to where whales came from, where their cousins are on land. What would you look at that thing and go, huh, that's a... Would there be something that's extant today that you'd look at and think, ah, oh, um, that's not a whale, that's a chicken? Or, yeah, well, did not, have wings. No. <laughs> not quite wings, but... <laughs> so this thing would have been about maybe the size of a wolf. Okay. Uh, yeah, would have, right. Would have generally yeah. looked like a wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
and yeah, would have been covered in fur, would have had four fully functional legs, and would have been running around on land. So, <laughs> a little bit different to a dolphin, mm. essentially. And, and so, did it? Okay, I mean, did it, it obviously didn't have baleen. Did nope. it have teeth? It had teeth. Yeah. Okay. They were yeah. meat eaters. Yeah. Um, and they would have uh, spent quite a bit of time swimming around in rivers and stuff like that. But they didn't spend all their time in the water like living species. And it would have looked like a dog. Would have looked essentially like a dog. Now, it would have looked a little bit different because the, the eyes are quite high up on the skull and quite close together. So right. it's thought that it would have sort of lay in the water and basically been like an ambush predator. Like a hippo. Like a hippo or like a croc. So it could have been yeah. something like a furry crocodile, just a bit smaller. With, with smaller teeth. Wow. Smaller teeth, yes. But then Goodness me. How's a crocodog. <laughs> but a whale crocodile. <laughs> a, whale crocodile. <laughs> a crocodile with supersonic hearing. Yeah. Um, so, then, sorry. <laughs> the, the supersonic hearing just d- didn't come in for another 20, 40, 30 million years. Um, and so, the, so, so dogs are the closest relatives now. Uh, no, they're no. part of a group known as the artiodactyls, so things right. like hippos, cows, pigs, stuff like that. So they would have had hooves on the end of their toes um, right. as well. So they're the part of part of that group there. But but the, and 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 so that thing that you talked about, that Pachycetus mm-hmm. um, one that was fifty million years old, yep. um, that just happened to kind of look a bit like a wolf. Yeah, it's just in terms of sort of overall body shape and just general size, it's about the size of a wolf. Right, um, so but it was really kind of more related to a pig. Or yeah, a, yeah. So a, a furry sh- pig sitting in a river with with big teeth. Yeah, shaggy river pig. Shaggy. <laughs> that is so cool. Okay, and so when did they... Um, I know we're talking as if this, you know, kind of happened in a really standard sequential <laughs> <Yeah>. process. But, <laughs> you know, obviously for listeners who aren't aware, evolution doesn't work that way. There's a lot of dead ends and a yep, lot of weird exactly. stuff and it takes millions of years. But when do you then from the fossil record recognise a thing that looks more like we might think of as a whale? Um, well, the whole process actually happened, in, in, again, in evolutionary terms, <laughs> remarkably quickly. So within sort of 10 million years of oh, that's quick. that, um, the... <laughs> Whales were fully aquatic and had spread to North America and even Antarctica. So, um, say, by 40, 40 million years ago, you would have had something that would have lost all its fur, fully aquatic, probably lost its, more or less lost its, lost the function of it, the rear legs, or the rear limbs, I should say. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, something and, you would have thought rear, of as a whale. And, and, the, and, I, and I know it doesn't work this way, but the rear limbs effectively is the tail now? Um, or the rear limbs kind of disappeared and something well, else became like a, a little pig tail turned into a whale tail. That's pretty amazing. I wouldn't have had a curly pig tail, <laughs> but the, so Pachycetus would have had quite a strong tail, which it would have used okay. for swimming. Yeah, right. Um, and, and the tail stayed as the tail. The tail stayed as the tail, but the legs basically became okay. reduced and mm. uh, were essentially lost. But you can still find sort of vestigial yeah. leg bones even in modern whales today. If really? You, if you so if you enough. look at a if you look at a whale skeleton, a huge whale skeleton, yep. you might if you look roughly where you'd think, you know, oh, I might get a second pair of legs here at the back, there might be a little kind of nubbin of bone. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly all it would be, just a little nubbin, but that's what it would be. That is so cool. Yep. Okay, so <laughs> so when they were at, when they're spreading through the oceans of the world, these furry foot for footed pigs, um, <laughs> they, you know, they're getting there. Um d- when did they? I'm assuming the ones on land were breathing through the front of their face, yep. not the top of their head. And that's head. something we can track using okay. the fossils: the the movement of the nostrils from the tip of the snout, moving back up the skull, and then as you get into sort of species that you would recognise as 
you know proper whales a whale yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you see the movement of that going up onto the top of the skull and we've got all the fossils there to sort of track really? that yeah but how, I, what I don't understand is that would seem like because our nose is a soft bit mm-hmm. like, and, and there, there seems like a hole like how can you know whether the nasal nasal stuff is migrating because there are holes in the skull or something yeah you do have the holes in the skull yeah, so we can right. track that and then of course that's a proxy then for sort of soft tissues that were associated with that of course mm. so Travis you said that oh. during a 10 million year period is mm-hmm. where they pretty much moved into land and then 10 million years later they were all across the oceans yeah um, was there some sort of this is the, eco- the ecologist in me asking this yeah. like is there I mean what, for them to be so successful in that period of time like what were the changes um, say you know geologically on a big yep. on a big scale that were occurring that allowed them to there was almost like a niche you know there was yep. an, uh, you know they yeah, were able was to there fill nothing else there? yeah exactly yeah. what you know what was it about the world at that time that allowed them to expand like that like you know did the is there new oceans mm-hmm. opening up or something similar? have the sharks taken a holiday yeah, yeah like, exactly. <laughs> like, like no one's eating anything they're like oh cool i mean it's just like shaggy river pig yeah <laughs> you know there's definitely a sort of b-grade horror movie to be made yeah that's it. it really is <laughs> oh definitely anyway sorry to your sensible question john um well essentially if you go back 15 million years more to 65 million years ago, mm. you have the end Cretaceous mass extinction. So all the marine reptiles, dinosaurs, all that were wiped out. So you have... Mm. So all the big scary reptile dinosaur things have disappeared from the yep. oceans. So there's a lot of these yeah. niches that are just waiting to be filled and there's nothing there for you mm. know, a, large, a long period of time that's filling them. So, so sharks hadn't really kind of taken hold at that point as a big uh, predator. Sharks were still around. They were doing what sharks do and yeah, yeah. still do today. But... Um, and in terms of what marine reptiles were doing, those niches weren't yeah, being filled. Wow. So that's something that um, uh, whales basically, they've evolved to fill those niches and penguins did for a little bit and yeah. seals mm. have also done. So, sorry, well. sorry, penguins were at one point predatory? Uh, not so much predatory, it used to be <laughs> okay. a, lot, a lot bigger. Well, yeah, they, they are predatory. Oh, I know they're, they're predatory, predatory on small fish. fish. I know, but yeah. they're not like you don't go, ah, big scary penguin with huge teeth. When you say a lot bigger, like bigger than emperor penguins. Yeah, yeah, maybe about a metre and a half. <laughs> That's my other area oh, of research. Really? Yeah, that is so not. very cool. <laughs> Sorry, a metre and a half high, the penguins that go around eating things. With a giant spear-like beak. Mm. Oh, that is so cool. How long ago were they? That was about 40 million years ago. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Anth really wants a time machine right I, I'm now. just going to ask <laughs> a sensation. Can you imagine this ocean? It would have been brilliant because you've got... You've got the, the all the teleos fish, all the fish that in the sharks and things that and the and the cartilaginous fish that are kind of moving into the empty spaces, ecological spaces. You've got these shaggy river pigs that have kind of decided <laughs> to jump in the water, and then you've got these giant penguins. Yeah, madness. Wow. Hey, and tell me, then you said they were toothed. Yeah. So they've got teeth, mm-hmm. and of course now, what is about fifty fifty? Whales have got teeth or baleen yeah, like species. There's still more toothed species okay. than there is baleen, but of course baleen whales are. Bigger. Much, much bigger. Now, where, when, like, they got baleen later. Mm-hmm. Now, baleen, for those that don't know, is that basically the, the plates they have in front of their, their mouth that sieves, lets them sieve out yep. little stuff like krill. How, where do they come from? They just, do they change their teeth or grow whiskers? Uh, no, that's uh, sort of an ongoing area of debate and one I'm sort of involved with at the minute. Um, there's a couple of schools of thought as to did the baleen evolve alongside the teeth or uh-huh. uh, what myself and my colleagues think is that the teeth were lost first they became suction feeders and then they needed something to retain stuff in in the mm-hmm. oral cavity and that's what why, why wow. baleen evolved wow so suction feeders would have been sucking in water or mud uh, it would have been 
suck, sucking in water with sort of yeah. prey. Yeah, so yeah. like a whale shark or something. I mean, yeah. they don't really um, suck, but they, you yeah. know, yeah, still... Would have been, well, you see sort of stuff like uh, maybe like a beluga or something mm. today, they can yeah. sort of... Yeah, like a manta, maybe like a manta. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. And so I've got, you know, I know it doesn't happen this way, but when you trace back, Mm Baleen, what were they? Were they just like whiskers that went wild or...? It's made of keratin, so same stuff as your fingernails. Um, Wow. Yeah, so we think it's come from, evolved from the gum tissue. And they and they decided to grow fingernails from their gums. (laughs) Sorry, I know it doesn't happen this way. (laughs) Putting slate spin over, yes, essentially, yeah. (laughs) So hang on, so the shaggy river pig gets into the ocean, eats what it can with its teeth and then grows fingernails from its gums and becomes baleen whales. That's the two-second... That's it, yeah. (laughs) Plain English, completely scientifically incorrect version of (laughs) whale evolution. I like it though. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. I can't... So tell me, we've got to wrap up. We could talk about this stuff all day, but is this field of whale paleontology and giant penguin paleontology, is it a big field? Uh, it's a reasonably large field. I mean, hmm. it's something that we're pretty fortunate that's media friendly, so it does yeah, get a course. bit of interest and stuff. But um, it it is it's a decent sized field, and we're hoping that there's plenty of fossils out there that we can use to get more people working on. So it has field. got a pretty complete fossil record. It's good. It's getting better. Um, like for example, last week I was out there collecting new fossils along the surf coast, and also there's tons and tons of fossils waiting in museums for people to actually just write them up so. so this is a growth industry kids. yeah get into your yep. kids whale paleontology yep. and congratulations on here um you're heading off to the natural history museum in london yep for a postdoc very soon so Can't that's wait. fantastic i um, mean that would be the pinnacle of mm-hmm. anyone's career in this field i'm sure and i've just got one final question when you look at a whale now mm-hmm. like a, a real live whale now do you see the whole animal or do you see the bits of evolution <laughs> you know the, the lack of leg and the fingernails coming down from the gums i uh, <laughs> i see the bits i'm interested in so <laughs> my phd was on all on the ear bones so i just look at the earbuds travis once again fantastic to chat with you about the origins of whales and um enjoy your postdoc thank you thanks for having me do you say indispensable Triller. indispensable 102.7 that's what I thought. And that's what I thought as well. <laughs> um, you're on the radio on Sri Trubela. Um, it is the day of the French election. I'm going to do the rest of the show with an outrageous French accent. Jean. And that's Anth Bokshaw. <laughs> and I'm John Paul. <laughs> you just didn't want to own that, did you? It's an outrageous French accent. My two elders do outrageous Yours French accents. Yours is quite outrageous, actually. Yeah. <laughs> You're on Radio Marinara on 3RRR. It's about 11, 12 minutes to the doctors. You've been having a bit of thinking about aquaculture. Yeah, we're going to have a discussion about aquaculture, aquaculture being fish farming. And there's been a lot of talk for a while now about aquaculture, the expansion of aquaculture, expansion of fish farming, being a way to provide a whole lot more food for the world. And that includes Australia. Um, And... It's been seen as this idea of like we just need to, you know, we've done it on land, now we can do it in the seas. It almost and sounds can, like it's, it's, it, it's, it's the way it's talked about, it's the next, it's the saviour. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Because the world's wild 
fish stocks are pretty much at capacity. So the world's fish catch has plateaued and we're not going to get much more out of it. In some, in a lot of regions, it's actually in decline. Mm-hmm. So we've got a growing population. Yep. We've got a growing demand for seafood, particularly in Eastern mm-hmm. Asia and in China, where um, as the middle class moves through, or the, sorry, as the middle class grows, the demand for seafood, as particularly as a food of status, is going to grow. And But the seas can't provide that. So the idea is that aquaculture, fish farming, will do so. And as I'm, I mean, I know you've talked about this, but but fish protein is good protein too. Mm. You know, it's a That's good it. source. Yeah, so it's you know, a good, not only is lean there protein, and yep. yeah, yep, all the, and so it, it, it's good for you. So I mean, and so, but there's some issues with yeah. with fish farming that we've we've talked about a number of times, and uh, issues with pollution, issues about what you feed them, and how do you rely on the wild fish stocks for that? But we're not going to get in those specific issues today. We're going to look at the Australian situation of aquaculture okay. and some recent developments we've had, particularly in Tasmania, around salmon farming. Because as, as much as we have this idea that aquaculture is going to, you know, provide us with food security, provide us with more with more food, we've got to grow that whilst you know our um, our fishery, wild fisheries remain, you know, pretty much on the level and mm. aren't going to feed us anymore. Um, we've got to actually accept that. Aquaculture or fish farming needs somewhere to go. You've got to have a it, farm. You've got to have a farm <laughs> and that farm has to be somewhere. Yeah. And just like we have done for hundreds of years here and thousands of years around the world for terrestrial land farms, when you put a farm in, you change the environment. You fundamentally yeah, right. change that place where you put that farm. And are we ready for that? Are we ready? Oh. In, in particularly in in this Australian culture and where we're at, where we still where we, we appreciate the marine environment. Absolutely, we want to value that marine environment. Um, but in many cases, we don't want it. To, we don't want it to change. Particularly if it's in a it's in a state where we see as good biodiversity, good productivity, or just the intrinsic value of it being um, somewhat undisturbed. How interesting! Can I can I take this to the land? Mm-hmm. And ask the same question. Sure. If we were to imagine that you had a, let's just say, a, a native grassland with some shrubs that had been there for many, many, many hundred thousands of years, and then people decide they want to farm, I don't know, sheep on it, cows, you're basically asking the question that it's a bit similar. Mm. The value that people place on that pristine land versus the value they place on the production of that mm-hmm. land in its farming context. Yep. And why does it seem different in the ocean? Well, I think that Australia no I mean, Or is it not well, different? Well, I don't, think, I don't we think, never... think it's different. Right. I think that we developed most of particularly Australian farmland when there was a very strong pioneering mentality. And yeah, that's been happening for hundreds of years. Of you go out there and we need to grow. We need to pioneer. We need to um, to to wrangle nature and, and, and make it our own. We're at the point now where we can do whatever we like. We can wrangle whatever we want. And the yeah. pioneering the pioneering kind of culture has sort of dipped away and we've had a rise of sort of protection of cons- conservationism. And that's a good thing because we have too much power now. We can do we can pretty much ruin nature as, as much and as often as we like. So we need those protections, but at the same time, then we want when we want to grow something into a new area, we don't have that. So haven't we got to a point now with our with our uh, marine farming, with our aquaculture, 
where, as you say, our, techno- our use of technology, our understanding of impacts, our understanding of risks and mitigations to those risks is such that we can put those farms into place and it's not like bulldozing an entire forest and making it into a cow farm. It's actually, you know, can work kind of a bit more in sync. Mm. But it will still have an impact. You'd hope so. Right. Right. You'd hope think that, okay, we have a, have a really good understanding of what our effects are going to be and, and where we need to put these farms. But you've got to remember that we haven't done this for very long. Yeah, right. So we're actually still learning. And aquaculture does offer such uh, a growth area when it comes to investing in research and getting getting good returns on because we haven't actually done all that much research. We haven't done all that much fish farming. I mean, it is definitely an opportunity area and a growth area. However, we're actually not don't have this great understanding of of the f- impacts of fish farming and what to do, where, where, where to, what to do, and where, like we do on land, because and we've got thousands of years of experience. So if we if you scale it up in the water, um, you know, the aquaculture to the level that we'd need to do to feed our, you know, I, I guess what I've seen, you know, Melbourne at twenty fifty is. 10 million, which is, you know, more than double what it is now, and you've got to feed those people with seafood and they've got to come from somewhere. If you scaled up to do that, are we talking about every cove having a fish farm? Are we, you know, like, and then the question becomes almost like a, it's almost like a, an, an aesthetic question mm. and, a, and a recreational use question Absolutely. rather than and, a where do I get my food from. And look, again, in aesthetics and culture, I mean, in recreation, this is all very strong Australian values oh, and Western yes, values right. because if you, look, if you look at places like Korea or Taiwan or, or China, yeah. there are fish farms in almost, you know, yeah. because they, they use that land and that is, their, that is their cultural preference to do so because they value that. If we're going to value recreation or we're going to value yeah. um, amenity or aesthetic, um, that's, that's our choice. Hey, so but where also, do we get our fish from? So we also have an Australian um, example of this, I think the south coast of New South Wales, all those little inlets with their oyster farms, mm-hmm. you know, right up and down parts of that coast, even possibly a bit north of Sydney yep. as well. They're, they're like, you know, oh, you've been there for years. Well, that, I mean, yeah. and they're, they're widely accepted because yeah. they are an established industry. How what we have now, and I want to get to this Tasmanian example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tasmania is Australia's producer, well, only producer, really, of uh, Atlantic salmon. Sure. Right? So the salmon that you buy, the pink the pink fish that you buy mm. um, in, the, in the shops, it all comes from Tasmania mm-hmm. and it is all grown in big fish pens we don't have any wild or, or natural um, you know native populations yep. of, of of atlantic salmon well they don't so occur here <laughs> well but there are escapes yeah, and yeah, they do yeah. get out but yeah. they don't breed so um the conditions aren't right for yeah. them so that that's where they come from and they've been you know f- farming them for many years yes. particularly um down in, down in well in the west coast in macquarie harbour and also down sort of in the Huon in the Huon area as well and what what the government wants and what a lot of companies want down there is an expansion of that because sure. tasmania Tasmania is in a place where you know it has record high unemployment for Australia, mm. and they really and they are losing a lot of their young people, and they want jobs, mm. and they want to develop that. And so, fish farming is something that they see as being a really strong growth and um, they also industry. Market themselves as clean green, so you can mm-hmm. sell that fish as clean green fish around the That's world. Right. They've got that real kind of you know, it's it's not coming out of some polluted harbour; it's coming out of the, you know Tassie. That's right, but that expansion has come up against a whole lot of these issues that we just talked about. So the issues in in that we don't, haven't done all the research, so we don't entirely understand what the impacts are going to be. 
We've got the the issue that the, of, the, of amenity and of of, uh, of the aesthetic. People don't want to see them see them in the in the water, and also the recreational use as well. People want to use them for other things. Yeah. So and so there's been a recent um, approval for uh, it's called Okehampton Bay mm. in the east in the east coast, um, where one of the companies Tassel can now um, put a whole I think it's thirty odd fish fish pens there mm-hmm. and uh, and grow fish, mm-hmm. and that's had a lot of community opposition. Um, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, now, recently, Tesla hasn't had a very good reputation environmentally and, and has not had a very good reputation when it comes to being open, transparent and, and, and disclosing information. They've been quite poor in that, really. Yeah, and so there's been a, a huge lack of trust and, and they've, you know, that in many ways brought on by themselves. And, that's, um, and so the, there's some real, really big issues down there. But again... How do we value? How do how do we it's value those coastlines? And, and I, do we want do we want to have those jobs associated? Because it's easy for me to say in Melbourne, I don't uh, yeah. I don't want the Tasmanian environment to be ruined. Yeah, but when I do the people want there my fish. when the people there don't have jobs. <laughs> but I want my sushi. But I want my sushi. <laughs> and the people there don't have jobs. Yeah, yeah, so totally. it's it's very you know it's yeah. it's a hard and, one. And but what I'm find what it's interesting too is uh, there's not a conversation about that. No, not so at all. So I think that conversation happens on land. Mm-hmm. I think that happens in country towns when you've got the you know the potential clash between environmental use and, and agricultural production. It's been happening for 100 years and I reckon that happens but I don't reckon it happens around fish. No, it often doesn't. How interesting. And and we've got also remember in Australia that we import most of our fish and if we don't want to grow our fish here or catch our own fish here, we import it. And we're doing this to someone else's We're coast. doing this to someone else. Yeah, someone wow. who doesn't value it for recreation. Someone who, which is the same with fishing, closing down sort of commercial fishing. It's like, well, we'll export the problem somewhere else where they don't value the recreation. They might not have the good environmental standards that, or, or labour standards that we, that we want, but we don't mind because it's cheap. This is a genuine conundrum and a conversation that should be... I think you're starting the conversation, aren't you? Good. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, fascinating challenge for us because we, we need to um, – we, we, we're going to have to wrap up, but we need, we need to get these things um, discussed. We need to get it out front because it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, these things are going to happen. And we want to make it happen well. Yeah, yeah, well so that we can accept it, so that we as, as, a, as a society – can kind of work through that, have those conversations so we can balance up these issues. Yeah. Thank you, John. It all starts here. It does. This is, we remember this conversation in 10 years' time <laughs> with this debate is raging. <laughs> hey, you're on Radio Marina. Thank you very much. The doctors are lining up. Um, thank you to tr- Dr. Travis and Dr. Neely, uh, nearly Dr. Travis Park, for joining us this morning and talking about whales. Thank you to you, John. Thank you, Anne. Next week, Bron and, oh, gosh, I think it's Peter. Mm-hmm. It's like it's Dr. Beach, I should mm-hmm. say. <laughs> hey, uh, the doctors are here. Uh, we'll see you again. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.